Hi, I'm Dr. Sanjay Naran. I serve as the ASPS University Dean of Pediatric and Craniofacial Surgery. Uh, I'm thrilled to introduce today's episode of Plastic Surgery Hot Seat, in which we'll be talking about craniofacial surgery, life outside of the OR. Medicine is not confined to the hospital, and it impacts people's lives in a significant way, uh, some of which may not readily be appreciated by us in the hospital setting or even the post-operative setting when we see our patients in follow-up. To help us gain a better appreciation, we are fortunate to have Dr. Justine Lee and Dr. Kavitha Ranganathan provide their experience and perspective. I'll hand the microphone over to Dr. Lee uh, to begin with uh, an introduction of herself, and then we'll move on to uh, Dr. Ranganathan. Thanks, Sanjay. Thanks so much, uh, Dr. Naran, for the invitation to be part of this really interesting uh, podcast. It's a, definitely a, an interest of mine to talk about all the things related to craniofacial surgery that we don't always think about. Uh, my name is Justine Lee. I'm, a, I'm at UCLA. I'm a craniofacial surgeon there, and um, I do both pediatric uh, craniofacial surgery, as well as gender-affirming facial reconstruction. Um, in addition to my my job as a surgeon, uh, we do do quite a bit of outcomes uh, research work in um, psychosocial outcomes in both populations. Hi, this is Kavitha Ranganathan. It's such an honor to be here with both of you. Um, I am a craniofacial surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital, where I do um, trauma reconstruction and cancer reconstruction for craniofacial um, uh, patients. And I also do pediatric plastic surgery at Shriners Hospital for Children. My research is actually focused on um, why patients are becoming poor as a result of the surgeries that we're doing. And as part of that, this topic fits, fits perfectly. So thank you for having me. Great. Kavitha, can you tell us a little bit more about the uh, research in regards to bankruptcy after surgery for some of the patients that you've been treating? So it's it's an interesting problem because, you know, while I started my career focused on global health, what I actually realized is that the problem of medical or healthcare induced bankruptcy is actually a global one um, and is actually, unfortunately, very prominent in the United States also. Worldwide, over 150 million patients struggle with the problem of being unable to afford health care or being able to afford uh, very little after needing or receiving health care. And so that's a huge number. And the even uh, bigger problem is that over 80 million patients struggle with surgery-induced bankruptcy, meaning that there are over 80 million people that need surgery that either can't afford it or can't afford anything else when they need surgery. So it's a huge problem that I think as plastic surgeons, we, um, you know, I'm sure many of our patients deal with this. Um, and I, I would love to solve this problem by the end of my career. So just to clarify, though, this is this we're talking about surgery that needs to be done. These are cases that are not really elective uh, cosmetic cases. These are these are more reconstructive cases where patients are experiencing this hardship postoperatively and possibly a, a delay or inability to seek uh, appropriate uh, postoperative care because of those financial constraints. That's a really interesting question. Um, so to be honest, we don't actually know the answer to your question because so little is known on this topic. Based on modeling studies though, that use 
estimates of how many people need surgery and what surgery generally costs. It could be patients that need elective surgery or patients that need non-elective surgery. Um, basically, any patient is at risk. And while we oftentimes think that it's actually poor patients or only patients that are on Medicaid that are at risk for poverty after needing health care of any sort, it's actually patients with private insurance that are just at, at, at high risk as well. And so really anyone could be a victim of you know, healthcare induced bankruptcy. It's just the cause of um, the cause of those expenses and cause of that poverty that can be variable. Justine, has any of your experience been different for a, a primarily pediatric patient population? Usually many states have contingencies for uh, medical care for pediatric patients that don't exist for uh, adult patients. Yeah, that's a I think Kavitha's research is just so interesting and really uh, kind of hits home for me, to be honest, because, you know, my, my own personal immigrant parents have the same fears about medical care in general. Um, but to your question, Sanjay, um, the majority of our patients who are pediatric patients are 70% um, of them are covered under Medi-Cal, um, which is a California version of Medicaid. And so we typically don't have that type of issue in terms of bankruptcy, but they may have started from a very, very, um, you know, disadvantaged, economically disadvantaged place, meaning that the things that we're looking at for them is not so much um, the, the care afterwards, but even being able to afford transportation to get to the care, whatever the care may be, outpatient visits, as well as um, inpatient surgical stays. Um, I, I'd say that an interesting phenomenon that we had seen in our psychosocial work over and over again is, and we can't explain it, um, but we see this, is that our patients with private insurance um, have a tendency to report worse psychosocial outcomes compared to our patients with private uh, public insurance. I think that's very interesting because one of my experiences, I'll just share one of my experiences in terms of um, uh, medical cost. Uh, it was a pediatric patient uh, and they had uh, nasal trauma, uh, documented history of an accident, a nasal bone fracture, a significant uh, external uh, uh, deformed appearance as well as nasal obstruction. Um, all of this was documented in my note. We submitted it to the insurance company and submitted the uh, for prior prior authorization, the CPT code. And just like many times in the past, the insurance company uh, approved the code. Um, but as we both know, as we all know, um, an insurance company saying sure this the surgery is approved is not a guarantee that they're going to pay for it after the fact. So we went to the operating room. Um, fairly confident that, okay, the insurance company is going to pay for this. They're aware of the surgery. They're aware of the context of the surgery. And after the surgery was completed, the family received a bill for the entire cost of surgery. Um, and the insurance company had said that they were, were they denied uh, covering it, even though they had previously had said it would be, it would, it was an approved code. And I couldn't, I was really powerless to do anything for this family except uh, talk to our hospital uh, our hospital billing department and help uh, help 
help the family convince the hospital that some of the charges should be dropped. So I could, I, I was insistent that my surgeon fee be dropped, but I couldn't do anything to change the anesthesia fee and some of the, uh, the, the facility fee. And so the family was still left with uh, over a, a bill that was over $10,000. Have either of you had experiences like this for some of your patients? <laughs> I feel like I struggle with this on a daily basis, to be honest, and um, to the point that it's it's almost like a war of attrition when I'm dealing with insurance companies. And um, thankfully, my team just never gives up and we keep hounding them. So most things we get covered, but certainly, um, especially for my gender affirming surgery patients, which um, my approach is very inspired by Dr. Lee, actually, um, but especially for those cases, it takes hours and hours of effort to get anything approved. And even when we do get approved, it's very similar to you in that um, the patients unfortunately still get expenses that we have to deal with on the back end. And so it's definitely a challenge. It's hard to know what to do to address the problem other than the fact that I do think that surgeons and physicians need to be more involved in the processes that go into um, the regulations around insurance companies and, and pharmaceutical companies and things like that, because if we're not involved, we end up, you know, putting in the work and um, and continuing the process as it is. But in order to effectively advocate for our patients, we really need to go beyond what we're currently doing. So, Kavita, um, if I may ask a question. Uh, so what do you, in terms of your research, like, what are you thinking of now? Like, how are you looking into this? Are you focusing on any, any particular areas? Yeah. So um, the reason why I picked this topic was because when I was thinking about my academic career, um, what what kind of I'm most excited about is global health. But at the same time, there's not necessarily a traditional model of academic success in global health. And so I wanted to pick a topic that spoke to my interest, but was also domestically relevant, um, in addition to being internationally relevant. And so um, an example of what we're doing now is we're doing a multi-center study in India where we are capturing data on um, trauma patients that have undergone surgery and the short-term and long-term costs and consequences of what it means to have surgery in the setting of trauma. Um, so we have 500 patients from a government hospital, a private hospital, and kind of a value-based, quote-unquote value-based um, kind of hospital. And what we have found so far is that when we're thinking about why patients are having challenges both in the perioperative period and in the post-op period. I call it kind of the new two-hit hypothesis. Uh, yeah, two-hit hypothesis in that patients are struggling initially because of how expensive care is, um, specifically related to the hospital bill that they receive. But somehow by one month after surgery, they're able to accommodate these costs, whether it's borrowing money from family members or selling their houses or selling their possessions or, you know, doing whatever it takes to get through that initial period. But then um, once they recover at three months, they suffer again. And now it's because of the disability associated with having trauma and the fact that people are unable to return back to their same jobs or they're missing work more or, you know, a variety of different factors that then lead to patients being unable to afford 
food and housing and basic necessities like clothing. And so I call it the two-hit hypothesis because um, patients are struggling both initially with the the cost of surgery, the quote-unquote direct medical expenses, but even when they're able to afford that, the disability that is incurred is kind of the second hit. And that, I think, is what prevents patients from getting back on their feet. But also what is exciting about this topic is that if you intervene at any of those two points, my hypothesis is that you can potentially change the trajectory of people's lives in a way that, you know, when you intervene on hypertension or, you know, chronic medical problems, you don't necessarily have that same potential. Um, but that it's still really early on. And but that's kind of what's exciting to me about about this idea so far. Awesome. So for, forgive me for asking a blunt question, but um, short of reducing charges and giving patients money, um, what sort of interventions can we do to, to help with that, uh, help provide a solution to that? When I think of things like uh, trying to reduce costs, I'm, I'm ver- I try to be conscious about the diagnostic tools or ordering imaging and uh, tests that aren't necessarily going to change my treatment plan. You know, it's one thing to be academic and have have some of these things, but if it's not really going to change what we're going to do, then I, I very much steer away from ordering those things. And that certainly helps reduce some costs, but um, what, what other interventions can we uh, apply at those two different time points that would lead to a potentially better outcome for these patients? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question that that I've struggled with. So I have thought about this problem from a couple different perspectives. The first is reducing costs from an institutional standpoint. And that to me seems really hard, specifically because cost is not a transparent thing in our health system. And there are so many different factors, whether it's insurance companies or how expensive care is within a hospital, and frankly, the inability to get such data um, that has prevented me from trying to address it from, from that standpoint. So I've kind of focused on thinking about how patients can accommodate these costs, whether it's, um, you know, financial planning or helping patients enroll in programs or even advocating for increased SNAP benefits during the perioperative period, things like that, that are more at the patient level. Um, So that's kind of the approach I've taken. But I think someone like Dr. Lee might have better perspective coming from a state that that probably does have better policies for its patients um, in terms of being able to afford care and whether it's job training programs or other programs that are kind of thinking outside of the box um, for what we can do at a policy level. I wish I could say that we have <laughs> much better options, but to be honest, I am not sure that there are, um, uh, you know, very, I'm not sure that there are organized methods of, of being able to get through affording care. Um, and, and, and I mean that, you know, just as you, the, the observation that you had that it's, that it's more for or private insurance patients, less so for or public insurance patients. Um, and I think that that's definitely something that that is challenging still. I have I have a couple of um, patients that um, they're, they're families, so um, pediatric craniofacial patients, and they don't come to a multidisciplinary clinic because it's too expensive, and they just kind of pick and choose and go to the specialties that they need to see when they need to see them. 
Yeah, Sanjay, I have a couple other thoughts on that too, based on what Dr. Lee said. I think there are some tangible things that we as providers can do. Um, the first is when you think about transportation, parking in the hospital is extremely expensive. So I think we as providers can advocate for our patients to get free parking when they come to Clef Clinic or, you know, whatever it might be. I think free parking, $40 um, a, a day is what it is in our hospital. Uh, and that's a lot of money. And and when you think about the, the consequences of waiving that cost, I think that would be huge for some families. Um, another thing is similarly to what I'm sure all of our multidisciplinary clinics do is having patients come in for all of their visits at once. And so this is especially important for daily wage laborers who, you know, if you have five appointments throughout the month, you can't really take five days off. And when a patient does miss an appointment, we are all, you know, as a society, very quick to judge patients on why they may or may not show up. And perhaps it's just because people have a hard time missing work because then they can't afford to put food on the table or school for their kids or all of the other kind of more essential things that come with life other than having your surgeon tell you that you're doing fine. Um, so, you know, grouping those appointments into one sitting can help patients who, especially in the pediatric situation, parents who can't miss work, uh, but still would like to get good care for their kids. And then my last suggestion is just that we as plastic surgeons, um, I think have missed out on some opportunities uh, that we could think about to change the trajectory of patients' lives. Um, an example that I can give for that is one of my facial trauma patients, um, you know, came from a lower um, socioeconomic status or economically disadvantaged background. And, you know, he wanted to turn things around, but just couldn't for himself for the longest time. And every week I would save a spot for him in clinic and sometimes he would show up, sometimes he wouldn't. Um, but eventually... Now, you know, he owns his own company and is back on his feet and has recovered from a variety of different social issues that, you know, he may not have. And it's hard to think about the fact that, you know, a clinic visit or just a scheduled visit can change something, but perhaps it can. And we just have been, you know, not thinking beyond the initial perioperative period for, for what happens to patients outside of surgery. Um, that approach sometimes doesn't work. I also did that for an 18-year-old patient with a mandible fracture that I just saved him a spot in my clinic every week in case he showed up with his grandmother. And, you know, most of the time he didn't show up. And, and you know, I'm sure he's still in a really challenging situation, but I think trying is really the best thing we can do um, and kind of asking people about their circumstances when they do see us in clinic so that we can intervene uh, both short and long-term whenever it's possible. I think there are, those are great points. Uh, we all know that cha you know, change, significant or meaningful change in this regard is going to start with us. And uh, little things like you had mentioned, parking is, is a big deal. I'm fortunate that at all of our hospitals, there's no charge for parking. But some of the other hospitals here in Chicago charged significant amounts, more than $40 to park downtown. Um, I think one of the other things that we should think about is uh, in regards to taking time off work. It's kind of, it's not something I usually think about because I usually treat pediatric patients, but it's kind of similar because I think about their school hours. And so I try to arrange our clinic hours so that they're after school so they can come in uh, and, not have, and not have to worry about missing school to come and see me. Um, I think one of the other things that we do that takes into account 
um, the seeing multiple providers, even if it's not a true multidisciplinary clinic, is if they're coming in to see me or one of my uh, colleagues, uh, we will combine a video visit with that in-person visit. And that's really taken off since COVID now that we're, we're doing more and more video and virtual visits. So we'll leave the, our laptop uh, or the computer in the room with the camera open uh, so that they can have their visit with the pediatric neurosurgeon or uh, one of the, like the pediatric ear, nose and throat doctor while they are there in the hospital with me. Um, so that way uh, it reduces the number of times they have to come into the hospital. So I think those are all great points that all of us can try and implement uh, in very short time. I totally agree. And I think it would be interesting to see how patient reported outcomes change as a result of that. We don't really know the the data around that. Um, but I know Dr. Lee has done a lot of work in this area. And I think it would be interesting to see if, um, you know, patient reported outcomes do change when financial challenges become more or less evident in people's lives. Because oftentimes what we're studying is just the you know, change in appearance or change in function that comes with surgery. But I wonder if our outcome metrics need to actually expand to what's happening to patients outside of the OR too. Yeah, I think that's a phenomenal point. Yeah, I th I, absolutely so. And I, I see that, I would say, um, you know, the, the easiest uh, patients that I see this in are actually the gender affirming um, uh, facial reconstruction patients, because things like, for example, you know, work changes uh, really fast, life changes, all that tends to kind of show up in the psychosocial outcomes. But I think that like um, both of your points in terms of like um, thinking of different creative ways, it'd be interesting to even consider just going completely virtual for a routine, annual, multidisciplinary cleft and craniofacial appointment. It's very few things we actually absolutely need to physically see. Um, and I wonder if we can just coordinate care that way. That's such an interesting idea because I think that would cut down so much cost. I'm personally technologically challenged, so some patients might, like me, might have uh, might have a tough time with that. But I think for the patients that are tech savvy, I think that would be wonderful. And I think even in you know many lower income families, people are still using cell phones and smartphones. And um, I think in the elderly population, it would be potentially more challenging to do virtual visits. But in the pediatric population, I think you know the younger generations certainly are more tech savvy, um, even than I am for sure. So I think that would be a great, uh, a, a great idea. Kavitha, I wanted to go back to something that you'd mentioned earlier. This is, this is not just a domestic issue, this is a global health issue, but all too often when we think about uh, medicine here in the US, we're, we're reminded of how expensive it is and how inefficient it is compared to other countries. What were some of the other countries' um, uh, report cards? Were there, area, were there other countries that f uh, fared far worse in terms of a greater percentage of patients uh, having these significant financial and social difficulties following um, surgery after trauma? Were other countries doing, uh, had a, did other countries have a much better report card? Were there any indications as to what they may have been doing differently apart from having completely free healthcare? 
I think that the healthcare in the U.S., as you mentioned, is extremely expensive and the outcomes don't match in a proportionate way um, to how high the cost is. One of the hospitals that I do research at in India called Ganga Hospital um, that's run by Dr. Sabapati, who's part of the AAPS, actually, they, I, I think, serve as an amazing example of the balance between cost and outcomes. Um, their motto is actually 99% success is a failure, if that tells you anything about how they're run. Um, but I'll tell you a story that kind of highlights why I think the U.S. is not actually picture perfect or, um, you know, even an example for what people should do. Um, I, as, as both of you do, um, we receive lots of emails for international patients that, um, you know, potentially have complications from other surgeries or whatever it might be. And I received um, an email from a mother that was really concerned about her son who had surgery elsewhere in the United States and over the past couple of years had been developing complications. And unfortunately, no center in the U.S. uh, was willing to take care of them because I think every center has kind of cut down on the, the, you know, opportunities for international patients just because of costs and the recovery that hospitals have had to make after COVID. And I actually was able to find a hospital in India that was able to care for the patient. And while surgery at a U.S. hospital would have been over $100,000, including ICU stay and the surgical supplies and imaging and everything like that, surgery was able to be done in India for $2,000. So $100,000 versus $2,000 for the same operation and that, that, you know, the surgery team conducted with extreme excellence um, internationally. I, I think that's an example of why, you know, surgical care in the United States is, is not sustainable in the least bit, not only for international patients, but for domestic patients too. And as we as a group are thinking about needs of international patients, perhaps it's time to think about international patients seeking care in low and middle income countries that do have the skills and expertise to get care done in a more cost effective manner compared to what we can in the US. Um, You know, that that relates to multiple different themes, including our general underestimation of what others in in um, countries across the world are able to do. Uh, But I think it's something that we as plastic surgeons really have to challenge ourselves on. I think that's a great example of a place that's really doing a lot to uh, address this and be really conscious about um, how they're uh, providing care to patients, the impact of that care on those patients, and trying to optimize that post-operative outcome. I really like the motto, 99% success is a failure. Um, So uh, I think that if there's an opportunity to uh, be better in that way here, all of us want to do that. Um, It's just it's difficult when you're um you know one doctor in a big machine uh, that is a massive hospital system sometimes you feel a, a little uh irrelevant and it's hard to move the needle but you know incremental changes eventually add up so um we've we've mentioned several different things that we can all do starting tomorrow to help uh make this experience because 
oftentimes in cases of trauma or all the time, it's not a good experience to begin with, but we can ease some of that uh, additional social and um, uh, financial pain for our patients by implementing some of the things that we've talked about already. Um, one of the things that we have uh, in terms of resources, I know for our cleft craniofacial patients, are uh, social service networks. So we have a social worker who's familiar with a lot of the community resources that are specifically available to cleft patients. Um, but we don't always have adult patients see social workers as part of their complex care, uh, at least not at our hospital. Is that something that either of you guys do? Because I think for a, a patient that's come in as a trauma or a cancer patient that's seeing multiple providers, have has multiple tests, multiple surgeries, um, a long list of follow-up. People need help to organize all of these things. And uh, us as individuals or the limited resources within each of our offices may not be enough to accommodate that need. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Sanjay. That's one of the things with uh, adults maybe that um, we're not quite as good uh, about. Um, I would say that, um, you know, the only adults pretty much that I work on are, are um, adults who are transgender and going through gender-affirming care. I will say that in a number of the um, gender-affirming um, health teams, healthcare teams, uh, there are social workers that are frequently around to kind of help out. Like, for example... Um, you know, we work with LALGBT a lot, as well as our own, you know, home um, gender health program. And there are definitely some social workers who can kind of um, uh, bring resources or at least help patients find resources for some income related things, as well as just general, um, you know, uh, issues with, with uh, support. I struggle with social work all the time. Um, there are a lot of patients that I try to have see social work, um, especially, for example, undocumented immigrants or, you know, my trauma patients. I do try really hard to have them see social workers. I think it goes back to what you were saying also, Sanjay, in terms of, um, you know, sometimes in very large academic institutions, it's hard to kind of feel empowered to do what you have to do for patients. And um, sometimes the resources for, for certain things just aren't there. And that's what I find really, you know, challenging sometimes is that you have this opportunity to really change someone's life, whether it's non-operative or operative management. Um, but outside of the surgical plan, you have an opportunity to really change someone's life. And sometimes you're just limited by the resources that you have. So my administrative assistant has kind of become a social worker also. I think my PA has also become a social worker during the time since I started at the Brigham. So we're trying to be creative, but I think it's one of the biggest challenges that, that I face for my patients that are really in need. I think the last question I had is um, going back to how we affect this change. And one of the things that you had mentioned, Kavitha, er earlier is having a seat at the table. 
So um, what are some of the resources or, or, or groups within, not only within ASPS, but within hospital systems that you would recommend becoming more involved in? So for example, at our hospital, we have a uh, patient satisfaction committee that um, when we meet every month and we go over, we basically go over the most extreme complaints from patients when we look at their feedback and try to find opportunities to improve upon upon that. And some of them touch upon what you had mentioned in terms of unexpected unexpected costs that were associated with a visit. What are some What are some of the other things that we can do to have? Or, or where? Sorry, where? At which tables should we be pulling a seat up to in order to try and do better for our patients? I think we need to be expanding outside of the world of medicine and surgery. And I say that because while it's possible to enact change in our own institutions, sometimes I feel like one of the biggest flaws in medicine is that we are almost just too immersed in medicine. And when you think about who's actually affecting change on insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies and access to care and coverage and cost, all these massive issues, it's actually senators and House of Representatives um, members and these higher up political organizations that are actually completely outside of medicine. So I haven't figured out um, any of these organizations outside of medicine, but I do think that that is an area that we've traditionally lacked uh, in terms of our involvement and I think would be the best kind of bang for our buck. Because if we think of institutions within the hospital alone, I think that is fitting more within the traditional silo that we've always been in. Um, And it's really hard to regulate things even within the hospital. But perhaps if we get out of our comfort zone and, and reach out to other organizations outside of medicine, sometimes I think that might be even more effective. Yeah, I, I think I can't possibly agree with Kavita more. That that is one of the one of the problems with being a, a physician and being a plastic surgeon is we love being physicians and plastic surgeons. And that makes everything else seem less interesting. But at the same time, there are certain limits to uh, how far we can go for patients. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, going bigger and coming outside of medicine might be um, the way to be. Um, in terms of like any other thoughts uh, on, on this in this stand, um, in this general arena, I mean, I think that probably one of the other things that we could do outside of clinical care is gather as much data as we can to support any of our colleagues, or as Kavita said, senators, so to speak. You know, with um, really arm them with the data of what's what's happening at the ground level for our patients. And I think that can actually can be very powerful too. So yeah, I think it's super interesting to, to see Kavitha's research and bankruptcy. I think the fact that we're looking at how um, people are doing their well-being, their quality of life, their psychosocial outcomes, um, yeah, secondary to their medical care and plastic surgical care, reconstructive surgical care, I think are all pieces of evidence that can really contribute to um, helping our patients in the long run. 
Well, thank you guys both. Thank you, uh, Dr. Lee, Dr. Uh, Ranganathan, for a really great conversation on a topic that I think many of us don't pay enough attention to. Um, we've ended this conversation with a lot of great ideas in terms of how we can actually affect change starting tomorrow. It starts with us, and we do have resources. They're there, um, and we just need to look a little bit harder for them. But having a better appreciation for life outside of the operating room for our patients, at the end of the day, not only is it going to help our patients a lot more, but it's going to help us be better doctors. So a special thank you to uh, both of you for this conversation. Thank you to our listeners. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. And thank you again for um, listening to Plastic Surgery Hot Seat. And be sure to be on the lookout for the next episode. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was wonderful to be here with you both.